Welcome to Approaching Zion, episode two. Episode two. We, we made it back. Against, Another week. Against all odds. <laughs> against all odds. We're here again. <laughs> so today we're going to talk about the doctrine of Christ. Which can seemingly look simple on the surface, but the more we discuss and kind of dive into these scriptures, it's simple, but it's deep and it's extremely profound. Well, it's simple in the sense that we teach it to investigators of the church, right? Our missionaries go out, they teach the restoration of the gospel, right? They teach the plan of salvation. They teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. The doctrine of Christ is all in there. And you can teach it simply, right? You can bullet point it, go through. We're going to do a little bit of that, I'm sure. But as we're going to see, each individual piece of the doctrine of Christ probably have a whole episode on yeah, on each point. We could. The beautiful thing is, I mean, we teach this to primary level kids, but that's the beauty of the doctrine of Christ and truth is that it always goes deeper and deeper. The more you learn, the deeper and more profound those truths really are, right? So that's what we're going to do today is, is kind of delve into and, and, and dig a little deeper into the doctrine of Christ from his own words and, and the words of his prophets and uh, kind of expound upon them and, and hopefully enlighten and edify uh, everybody. We're going to start, we're going to review a few very famous chapters of the Book of Mormon today. We're going to start in 3 Nephi 11, the visit of Christ in the Americas. And we will look at, we'll look at Alma. We might get to Doctrine and Covenants. And we're going to definitely get to 2 Nephi 32. And this is going to be great. So to get started, I'm going to pull up 3 Nephi chapter 11. And I'll read from 19. Nephi arose and went forth and bowed himself before the Lord and did kiss his feet. And the Lord commanded him that he should arise, and he arose and stood before him. And the Lord said unto him, I give you power that ye shall baptize this people when I am again ascended into heaven. So the first thing the Lord was teaching, or the first thing the Lord did when he visited the Nephites, before teaching the doctrine of Christ, his doctrine, is he gave Nephi power. He, gave, he established the priesthood. And we're starting here because I think this is very important. The doctrine of Christ comes to us and is applicable to us through the priesthood. It's even in the New Testament when we read about Cornelius, who receives the manifestation or, or the vision and begins to understand truth. He begins to understand the doctrine of Christ and then desires to obtain it, right? He, he truly wants to obtain this thing that has been revealed to him. And what does the angel tell Cornelius? Can he just go to anybody? Or can he just obtain this, this blessing and this gift on his own? No, of course not. That he must go to, to the one who has authority and the ability to be able to baptize. And ex that's exactly what Christ is doing here for his church. He's, he's clearly setting a foundation of first authority must be given. And then once that happens, his truth and his doctrine can begin to roll forth. Right, and to expand upon. 
And verse 22, it says, On this wise shall you baptize, and there shall be no disputations among you. Right? So you cannot have contention or disputation about authority. Mm. It has to be established. It has to be in the true church that Jesus Christ himself established in the hands of his priesthood, of his servants that have been called. That's the foundation. Right? That's why the restoration is so important in our days. Again, have a whole another episode. A whole episode on it. But that, but that it, it is, it's almost different from the contention that President Nelson has been pleading with um, the saints to end in their lives, right? That's that's personal contention and and personal conflict, which is also necessary. We must end that as well. But the Lord Himself is setting the foundation and, and essentially drawing a line in the sand, saying, "On this thing, there shall be no disagreement." Right? You must receive His doctrine from He or them that hold the keys, that have that power. And he, in essence, is trying to end the debate on what methods, what application, who has the authority to do so. He's clearly stating only he or those that have received this power may administer his doctrine. Full stop. And he's laying it out with plainness. Yep. From there, we're going to skip ahead to verse 31. And Christ says, Behold, verily, verily, I say unto you, I will declare unto you my doctrine. And this is my doctrine. And it is the doctrine which the Father hath given unto me. And I bear record of the Father, and the Father beareth record of me, and the Holy Ghost beareth record of the Father in me. And I bear record that the Father commandeth all men everywhere to repent and believe in me. And whoso believeth in me and is baptized, the same shall be saved. And they are they who shall inherit the kingdom of God. And whoso believeth not in me and is not baptized shall be damned. Verily, verily, I say unto you, that this is my doctrine, and I bear record of it from the Father, and whoso believeth in me believeth in the Father also, and unto him will the Father bear record of me, for he will visit him with fire and with the Holy Ghost, and thus will the Father bear record of me, and the Holy Ghost will bear record unto him of the Father and me, for the Father and I and the Holy Ghost are one. So there we have the doctrine of Christ. And we see the elements are really the fourth article of faith. Exactly. First principles and ordinances of the gospel. Faith, repentance, baptism, and receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost. And it was, I find it interesting that it's very important, the work of the Godhead and bearing record and the testimony they give of each other and the and and the oneness that they have with each other. I think that's something to to keep in mind and something I think we'll come probably circle back around to towards the end of this. But that oneness that's really stands out to me of how deliberate de- deliberate and uh, 
of an effort Christ is going through here to make that known. That the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost have that oneness. And that is an that is an integral part of the doctrine. One of the things the Savior points out here as well, and we'll probably delve into this a little bit more later on, but when he says, they are they who shall inherit the kingdom of God. And then it makes me think of the Savior when he's on the earth in his mortal ministry, talking about the kingdom of God is at hand. We so often push off or extend somewhere far into the future the blessings and the gifts and the opportunities the Lord is pleading with us to obtain. And even here, it makes me think that inheriting the kingdom of God, he's not saying at some future point. He's speaking in the present, right? You do these things, you follow my doctrine, and the kingdom of God can be inherited now, right? We'll we'll talk about that. Kind of unpack that more. Well, that's the two levels. There's the there's the there's this more superficial level where okay, inherit the kingdom of God means celestial kingdom. Yep. After you die, some you future state of being, you'll return to live with with God the Father. But as Christ taught, the kingdom is come. The mm. kingdom is at hand. Yep. Christ brought the kingdom to the earth. That was his church. He established his ter- church. He established the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God has been restored to the earth. And, and we are in the process of building it up. Well, and he says later on here that if you do not accept these things, you're damned, right? And, and that's not damned in some future state. I Many you're damned right now. You can't progress right now. Whereas the opposite is true. If you accept these things, then the kingdom of God is for you to receive right now. There's no limiting principle on what you can obtain from the Father and the Son, right, at that point. Talk about that more, but I really want people to get in their minds this perspective and this attitude of all of the blessings of the Father can be obtained at our own pace and our own speed and our own time. Because all things have been given that are necessary for us to obtain such blessings, right? We'll talk about that more later on, but continue. So for for now, I'd like to take a little bit of time to go into each one of these first principles and ordinances of the gospel, explore them a little bit briefly, see uh, if we can share some insights with each other on what they mean to us and and how we've come to understand them. And let's start with faith. So Nathan, what does what does faith mean to you? Faith is obviously an action. It's it is the um it is our effort. It is a token essentially of our desire. The thing we seek, right? How does the Lord know that we seek or desire a particular thing? We put our faith or we put into action what we are seeking, what we are desiring. It is the token with which the Father knows that we're being sincere, that we have real intent, that we're legitimate and are are worthy 
through grace, through the mercy of, of Christ, we're worthy to receive said blessing. Perhaps not at first. However, that, that seed of faith can grow. We'll, we'll talk about that. But it is, just like with so many things in the gospel, it is a, a token we give, we show to the Lord that we desire to obtain and to receive a particular bit of knowledge, a particular light. And of course, and the first the first principle is not just faith, but faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Correct. And faith is not just belief. I think belief is the starting point of faith. But as you said, faith is an action, right? And in the lectures on faith, it says faith is the principle of action in all intelligent beings. So our ability to act, our agency, and our ability to act is faith, which means we can have faith in all kinds of things. Whatever we are working for or acting towards, we are exercising, exerting faith in that direction for that thing. The doctrine of Christ is to have faith in him as the Savior and have faith in the power of his atonement and to use our agency and our ability to act to move in his direction, to move towards him, to become more like him through everything that he has given us in his work and his ministry. So faith is action, principle of action. One thing that uh, I was reading a Hugh Nibley book, actually Approaching Zion, which we named this podcast after, uh, but Hugh Nibley makes the, the comment, I thought it was really interesting, I wrote it down here. He said, though we exercise faith, and so we can increase it, we have faith, but we never read of receiving it. And that struck me as odd. They and I say it like that. Well, he, he points it out very clearly. So I went to the topical guide, I looked up faith, and I started looking through all the, the references, and sure enough, they're all about having faith, exercising faith, mm. right? As though faith is already within you. We have it. Yes. Yeah. We have it and we can exercise it and we can increase it mm. through exercising it. And faith is often referred to like compared to like a muscle. You work it out, you exercise it, it grows. And that was very interesting that it's it's, the scriptures don't talk about us receiving it, which means we already have it. We already have whatever it is we need to have it and to increase it. Hey, you know, I actually I met with a, an individual today who's investigating the church with, with um, the sister missionaries. And this is actually something that came up very directly because he truly didn't understand or didn't quite uh, believe that if he knelt down and prayed and, and asked for confirmation of certain things, that God would give it to him, right? And I spoke to this very directly from it, or to him, and I said, look, your ability as a son of God to receive truth, to receive understanding from the Father, it's already within you. It's just an aspect of you, a part of you, that you have not figured out how to exercise or you have not tapped into yet, right? I mean, we... 
we do all of these things with the physical form God has given us, our mind, our muscles, everything that our, our body uh, physically demonstrates to us. But that spiritual ability, that unseen part of us that we so often overlook, and not only do we overlook it, we cover up that spiritual side of us with the day-to-day mundane things of the world, that it is difficult for a lot of people who have not received this and not understand or, or been taught this truth to begin to even perceive, how do I allow this to grow within me? How do I get from where I am today? In this instance, the guy was, he didn't even know if God was real. You know, How could he ever see himself going from where he is now to a place in which he might have the faith and the knowledge that we have, right? Well, he just didn't understand that it's already within him. He already has that functionality. He just has to do the things necessary to tap into and open up that side of him. He needs to go through the process that Alma taught and in Alma 32. And I have some ideas here that I took out of uh, Hiram Andrews' book, Principles of Perfection. And when he talks about faith and it's as though I, I refer to it as there's different types of faith or there's different phases that our faith goes through. And it's really what Alma teaches in chapter 32. And let me pull that up here. Alma 32. So starting in verse 27, Alma says, Behold, if you will awake and arouse your faculties even to an experiment upon my words and exercise a particle of faith, yea, even if ye can no more than desire to believe, let this desire work in you, even until ye believe in a manner that ye can give place for a portion of my words. So the first phase or the first type of faith is desire. And I think a lot of people, when they think of the word faith, they think of desire. And that's the starting point. That's when we desire to know if something is true, to know if God is real, to know if Joseph Smith was a prophet, if the Book of Mormon is true. It starts just with a desire. You have to have the desire first. You know, this is such an eternal truth that I think it's been a long time since I read the book, but if I recall correctly, in Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich, which is often quoted as one of the most influential financial success or, or any kind of individual success books ever written, he kind of speaks to this exact same thing. You must first have a desire. And far too often, whether we're investigating the church or whether we're a longtime member in the church and have just, we think, plateaued, you know, we're not truly desiring. We're not really seeking and and sacrificing whatever is necessary to obtain what we desire, right? Mm-hmm. We let that fire dwindle to embers, you know, that maybe help us get to church on Sunday, but they're not really roaring and blazing and, and, and affecting all that we do in our day-to-day life, right? And so that desire needs to be something that continues with us to receive greater further light and knowledge. Because if you don't have the desire, you're not going anywhere. Mm. 
you're not you're not going to invest any time in it whatsoever. You have to have the desire, and you have to what does Amos say? Experiment with it. So desire, it is faith, but it's a particle of faith, right? It's a little it's a little baby faith. Initial step. It's an initial step, and um, I I feel like desire is the type of faith that it requires a very purposeful and conscious effort to produce work. This is not something you do accidentally. It's not, you don't just accidentally fall into something great like what faith produces, right? It's with real intent. Now, you may not understand and you may not have the knowledge or the ability even to obtain the thing in which you desire, in this case, the most important of things, coming to know the Savior and being like Him. But if you can, as Alma says, have that small particle of belief or desire, there is infinite amount of of work that the Lord can do with that, right? There's no stopping what he's able to do with just that small particle of desire. So we start with desire. Takes a lot of work on our part. We have to do it. We have to experiment. We have to go through those steps. And then something interesting happens. And let's pull Alma back up here. He starts to compare the word unto a seed. If you give place that a seed may be planted in your heart, behold, if it is, if it be a true seed or a good seed, you do not cast it out by your unbelief, it will begin to swell within your breast. When you feel these swelling motions, you will begin to say within yourself, this must be a good seed, or the word is good, for it bringeth, for it beginneth to enlarge in my soul, yea, it beginneth to enlighten my understanding. It beginneth to be delicious to me. So what's happening here is you've had desire, you've experimented on it, you've put in conscious effort to test to apply those teachings or in the case of, of someone who's investigating the church does maybe doesn't even believe in God right how do you but if you have a desire to know if God exists what do you do maybe you start praying and maybe that's really weird to you maybe that's just maybe you feel silly or weird doing it at first but you have a desire to see what is what is this spiritual connection with God that people are always talking about. You have that desire. So you start praying. You experiment with it. And then what happens? You start to feel something. You start to have spiritual experiences that you've never had before. You start to realize there's something here. Well, this is essentially, if we go with the the plant analogy, this is not necessarily the fruit hanging from the tree. It's not fully formed or fully grown yet. But this is... The seed is swelling. This this is the roots. It hasn't even sprouted yet. But these are the roots going down and digging deeper into your soul, into your heart, and beginning to make a place to grow there, to, to build a foundation that can be built upon where great things can then come to pass, right? But those roots must first 
be be woven into. They must dig down deep into your soul. And that's essentially what, what Alma is saying here is you may not have a fullness of the fruit yet. You may not have received all that is going to come, but you will feel this foundation being laid within you for greater things yet to be had. And this is, and Alma immediately asks, would this not increase your faith? Of course, of course it would. And this is what uh, Hiram Andrews referred, this is how he defined hope. Right, Faith and hope get thrown around together, they go together. Sometimes it's a little confusing, well, what's the difference between hoping and believing and faith? And So right, faith begins with that particle of faith, which is desire. But once that seed starts swelling, once you have a little bit of a witness that there's something to it, you start feeling those swelling motions within you, well, now you have hope. So hope would essentially be the second part of the overall faith that is building within you. That's the second type of faith or the second phase in growing faith is developing hope in that thing. And when you have hope, you have some evidence that it is going to produce results, that there's more to come. Right? The seed has begun to swell. So that's enough of a witness to know, hey, this is going to produce some sort of plant. This is going to, this is going to produce something more than I, you know, I, I didn't even know it would grow. Now, there is a word of caution here. Because whether it's an investigator or whether it's somebody actively engaged in, in the church and maybe even a longtime member, we tend to, sometimes, we go through this exact cycle. We're looking to receive certain blessings from heaven. We're looking to obtain some fruit. And we begin to put into action these levels of, of faith that we're discussing here. And the reason I bring up this word of caution is we have the desire, we begin to put things into motion to obtain that desire. The Lord or the Spirit may initially start to enact and help grow within us or around us the foundation, the roots to bring to pass the fruit we we ultimately desire but because we don't immediately receive the fruit, we then start to put off, to, to, to quash, or to, or to give up on the thing in which we desire. It right? still takes work. Exactly right. So this, this isn't just for investigators. There are blessings you want in your life. There are things you want the Spirit or the Lord to, to give unto you. These are great and righteous things, right? Or at least they, they should be what you're desiring. The point is, the cycle and the process is the same. You have that righteous desire. You begin to exercise a particle of desire to obtain said fruit, whatever it is. And the next step of the process is of your faith is, you begin to sprout roots within you, or the Spirit will lay, the foundation will lay roots around you to enact a foundation where the blessing you're seeking can be obtained, But because we don't immediately obtain the fruit in which we initially sought, we then start to move on and act as if we're not going to obtain it or that the Lord's not going to keep his end of the bargain, right? 
And really what we've done is we, we stopped watering and, and we allowed the sun to burn those roots that the Spirit and the Lord were placing in our lives, were allowing to grow in our lives to ultimately be the foundation for the fruit he, he is willing to give us later on. And if you let the sun dry up that seed, you lose your hope. That's exactly right. You no longer have hope that that seed will grow and produce fruit. Right? You lose what you had gained. The hope you had gained from the desire that you had experimented upon, you can lose. So diligence is very important. It, it does seem to be that this step of faith, this hope where the roots start to grow, it, it, is also, it, it also acts as, a, as a, a period of testing as well. You don't have the fruit yet you seek. It's not quite there, but you feel something. The question then gets posed to you, well, do I give up on that thing because it's not the ultimate fruit I desire? Or do I continue to nourish it and to be true and faithful to what has already began, begun to spring up in my life, right? I feel that things are changing. It may not be quite what I'm seeking, but things are changing. Okay, do I continue on? Do I persevere on to perfection? Do I, do I truly continue to nourish what the Lord is setting in motion for me? Or do I give up and do I turn my back on it and walk away? And the next phase in faith, or the next type of faith, is when, as Alma says, behold, it sprouteth and beginneth to grow. Right? When we're talking about planting and watering, it can take months and to grow your garden to produce fruit for it, for those seeds to sprout it can it just depends on what seed it is and what you're growing it depends on the the soil right how fertile you are in in in, in receiving it and nurturing it but behold at this point are ye sure that this is a good seed i say unto you yea for every seed bringeth forth unto its own likeness. Therefore, if a seed groweth, it is good. But if it groweth not, it is not good. Therefore, it is cast away. And behold, because you have tried the experiment and planted the seed, and it swelleth and sprouteth and beginneth to grow, you must needs know that the seed is good. And now behold... Is your knowledge perfect? Yea, your knowledge is perfect in that thing, and your faith is dormant. This is the fullness of faith. This is true faith. It's actually knowledge. Now, it's not a perfect knowledge, but it's a perfect knowledge in that thing you were experimenting on. When we talk in the gospel about having to grow and receive and learn line upon line, precept upon precept, we have to go through this process over and over again in the gospel. We have to take pieces of doctrine, parts of the gospel. We have to desire. We have to develop hope. We have to nurture it and grow it until we receive a witness of the Holy Ghost a perfect knowledge in that thing, and then we can build upon that. 
At that point, your faith is dormant. You have true faith. And we talked about in desire, with desire, you have to make that effort to experiment upon the words. Well, when you have knowledge on something, you begin to live according to that knowledge that you have. And what I mean is your works become natural. You start to produce works not because you're trying to be a good Christian, trying to be a good member of the church and be obedient. It's not about that effort you're putting into it. No. You become changed by that experiment and that knowledge you have that that seed produces fruit. And with that knowledge, the works come naturally. Not because you're trying to do it, you're putting an effort, because that's who you are. You've become more like the Savior and through confirmations of the Holy Ghost, through this process of developing the faith, through gaining these pieces of knowledge, little by little, over and over, it changes your heart and it changes who you are, and the works will flow from you naturally. And that's that's what is so beautiful about faith. It, it Alma goes on to talk about light and and that and that you now receive this light when we exercise this faith to its fullness, when we don't give up on it and we don't allow those roots and the early stages to wither and die. And then we, we allow it to sprout up and eventually to, to bear fruit. And this is a cyclical process. And sometimes it takes many harvests to receive a fullness of the fruit that we seek, right? So just as you, you said, this is a process that we continue to go through over and over and over again to ultimately receive what we truly desire and, and desire to obtain. But as you mentioned, it becomes interwoven into who we are. It becomes our true character. It becomes our true nature. And it actually dispels and gets rid of some of the bad fruit that may have been or, or some of the bad knowledge or understanding we had previously, right? So it actually replaces and removes some of the faulty thinking that we had previous. And I think that's why the natural next step of developing faith in Jesus Christ is repentance. Because mm. when you actually develop faith, the repentance is a natural... It's a natural effect. outgrowth. That's exactly right. It's You start to have the change of heart little by little. And until you understand how faith really works... Just like when we're all young, you know, kids or teenagers or whatever, repentance is seen almost as like a four-letter word, right? Oh, I don't want to go talk to the bishop about whatever it is that I'm having. And as you truly begin to develop real faith, as we've outlined here, you then seek, you desire, you want to repent constantly, it becomes, daily. It becomes delicious. That's exactly right. And... That's probably not a way most people would think about repentance. That's right. But it's my testimony that it is. Repentance can be delicious to you. But like anything, repentance is something you have to have faith in and have to develop a testimony of. And, you know, my, I just I want to add, one of the things that bothers me is one of my pet peeves, things that I, I hear people say, not necessarily believers, not necessarily people who are, who are good Christians or, or even in the church, 
but this idea that people don't change. People are just people. Well, without the doctrine of Christ, that's more or less true. It is true. But what does the doctrine of Christ provide? Just as we were mentioning, when you truly effectualize this process into your heart, into your soul, the natural man within you, the, the parts of you that are less desirable, get rooted out because they are overtaken, they are overgrown by the righteous seeds you have planted within you. Those roots begin to permeate throughout your entire being. They start to get rid of all of the wickedness and the evil that the natural man tends to receive naturally when we're born. We have natural tendencies. We have, we have um, the, the tendency to side towards evil or wicked desires, right? But through this process, through the doctrine of Christ, that is how we put off the natural man. And it's not putting it off as in, well, it's, it's always there. We're just white knuckling it. And, and we're, we're through our strength, we're, we're not giving in to those temptations, right? When we truly go through this process of faith and then repentance, right? We truly allow righteousness, light, knowledge, truth to overtake our souls, to permeate throughout us and to uproot the natural wicked seeds that might be within us. Hmm and truly change our nature and who we are and how we act and, who, and, and how we live our lives. And I don't think we're going to spend a lot of time on repentance today, but I just had one note here that I made. We can be forgiven only on the Savior's terms. Repentance is an acknowledgement of the power of the atonement. It is, a, it is the result of faith because you have to first and foremost have faith in the atonement of Jesus Christ to seek repentance through him and from him. And I just want to share my testimony that repentance is a, it's so beautiful. And some of the most amazing feelings of the Spirit and pureness and love of Christ that I have felt are moments when I have gone to the bishop and repented and confessed my sins. It's something that's scary. It's something that's uncomfortable, especially if you don't have experience having done it before. But I wanted to take this opportunity just to bear my testimony that if there's anything in your past that you have done that bothers you, that doesn't sit right with you, go talk to the bishop. I bear you my testimony that he has the priesthood and he has been called to be your judge in Israel. And if you go and talk to him and put, it, put yourself out there, and just tell him how you're feeling. That process will heal you spiritually through the atonement of Christ. I have a testimony of this, and 
it is my promise to anybody who's listening that that is a divine process given to us. It is a gift to have a bishop that we can confess to, that we can go through that process. It is a divine gift from the Savior, and it is a surreal blessing of the atonement. I think we mentioned in our in our initial podcast when we kind of introduced ourselves that we are certainly not believers who have not had to struggle and not have to have our not had to have our road to Damascus moment where we come to know understand and accept Christ and all that he has to offer right exactly what you just testified of which is true we have both had to go through that process myself as somebody who has struggled with several addictions alcohol pornography other issues as well we're not speaking as somebody who has not had to go through serious repentance ourselves we've had to go through that process so echoing what you said it may seem burdensome difficult hard to go talk to somebody who has priesthood keys and authority to be a judge in Israel but you can also not receive a fullness of the grace the mercy and the love of the Savior until you do so and as somebody who tried to justify every which way why I'm just going to do a little better I'm just going to be a, a little bit more righteous. I'm going to try and exercise my priesthood a little bit more true, but I don't think I need to go talk to the bishop. I don't think I need to go uh, uh, confess these these issues, these serious issues that I'm having. I'll just do it on my own. As somebody who tried that for years and was never able to truly overcome and put off these weaknesses that that I developed, but then truly went through a sincere repentance process and can now faithfully and honestly say, I am free from those addictions. I am free from so many of the burdens and cares of this world that tied me down. It is, it is always, first and foremost, humbling ourselves and going to somebody who has the authority to free us, to begin the process of freeing us from that burden and for whatever reason and we'll get into this at some future point probably the bishop that judge in israel has the keys to begin the process of freeing us from those serious sins right and then life gets real beautiful because as you truly start to come under christ and live his ways more faithfully more true you're still going to make mistakes and you're still going to sin and, and, and miss the mark. But when you can go to him in solemn prayer and repent of those things and seek his forgiveness and know that you can now be forgiven directly from him, that is a beautiful gift that honestly changes repentance from something to be, um, to dread and to not look forward to, to every day. What have I done wrong that I, I, I missed? What did I do that I didn't realize was wrong at the time that I need to go to the Lord and ask forgiveness of and seek a better way? And even things that may not be 
may not require going to the bishop to confess. The exercise of confessing to the Lord very specifically, right? Not just forgive me of my sins, mm. but having the conversation with the Lord that, Lord, this is what I did. Admitting it to the Lord. There's power in that as well. And when when your prayers are just very vague and high level and forgive me of my sins, that's that's not what the Lord is looking for in a personal relationship. The more exact we can be. Well, the more we the more can power. the more we can put ourselves out there with yeah. the Lord and just be real and have that conversation. He doesn't want any dark places in our soul. The light of Christ, truth, the gifts he's offering us, they've got to reach every corner of our soul. We can't hide anything from him. When because I feel like when we pray and just say, forgive, forgive me of my sins, that's trying to hide the specifics of those sins from the Lord. Or at the very least, not fully acknowledging where we have missed the mark. Well, we're, we're ashamed of them. Yeah. We're embarrassed by them. We don't want to bring them up. Yep. We want to hide them from the Lord like we hide them from other people. We don't want that, we don't want that to be well, an and, image of a or the Or the other option is we're just trying to cover, cover our bases, right? It's like, well, I've probably sinned. I don't really, I'm not taking the energy or the time to really think about it and have real contrition for it. I just, Father, forgive me for whatever I did wrong and move on. Like, it's not really what he is seeking from us. There's power in being specific in your repentance with the Lord. And there's unbelievable and amazing power in going to the bishop, confessing through the bishop. And it's not the bishop that forgives you. Mm. Right, it's the Savior Jesus Christ that forgives us. It's His atonement and the and His power through His atonement that offers us forgiveness. But the bishop is His mediator, and He is He is the person with those keys for us to go through. And it's just an unbelievable and amazing blessing that we have. Yeah. That, and that's why I say it's not the bishop who forgives us, but He does allow the process to begin. Right. Because then that has shown the Lord. Again, we talked about tokens a little bit earlier. It is a token. It is a sign of our real contrition. Lord, I have real desire. I have real intent here. I truly seek to be forgiven. And when we go to the bishop, his authorized judge in, 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 in Israel, it is a token of our real sincere desire to be forgiven of, of the mistakes and the sins we've committed. And there's an interesting connection there from repentance to baptism that just came to my mind. Because when we present ourselves for baptism, we present ourselves to a priest. That's right. And the bishop, of course, is our high priest of our ward. So there's actually a pretty strong parallel of presenting ourselves to the bishop for repentance to presenting ourselves to a priest to be baptized for the remission of sins. This ties, we like to use this this analogy or, or we describe it this way, and some people may think of this as well. I don't know how many do, but it, it's, it's not an accident that in ancient Israel, when the sacrificial lamb was prepared, he was taken to the priest, right? 
he was taken to the priest to be to be sacrificed. sacrificed. And it was the best lamb, right? It, it was the unblemished lamb or whatever the sacrifice may have been. And what is it? What is the Lord trying to tell us when we go to a priest or somebody who at least has those keys to say, I'm, I'm ready. I have a desire to, to be baptized, to enter into that covenant, right? We become the sacrificial lamb. We are the best of, of we are the the um, we are the best that we could present. The, they're the best that we can present. <laughs> That's right. I, I think it's really a a sign or a symbol of what the Lord thinks of you. Just as the unblemished lamb is sacrificed in ancient Israel, you are worthy of the sacrifice of putting off the old life, the natural man. You are the the unblemished lamb, so to speak, through Jesus Christ. You're worthy to be baptized, Mm -hmm. to have that resurrection, that death of the old life, and that brought anew of a new life. You're worthy of that. It's another representation in the gospel of just how literal we should take being sons and daughters of the Most High God. We should consider that more thoughtfully and not undervalue who we are. Now, we sh- certainly shouldn't be prideful in that. It should humble us and and make us have a desire to be even better, to be even more, because the Lord certainly thinks that we are worth it. I think that is powerful symbolism and imagery. When you think of the Old Testament priest with the sacrificial lamb, of course, the sacrifice represents Christ, and the priests would generally be making that sacrifice on behalf of the person who brought the, the, the animal to be sacrificed, or sometimes right on behalf of Israel as a whole, right, that those sacrifices would, would occur in the temple. But we know that right, baptism is connected with the sacrament. Elder Ballard taught that this ordinance of sacrifice was replaced with the ordinance of sacrament baptism so there's a there is that strong connection between animal sacrifice and baptism presenting ourselves as the sacrifice to the to to the priest and the priest makes that sacrifice when we when he places us under the water representing death and of course brings us back up representing the life that is available to us through Christ but i think that's very very powerful symbolism that when when you're baptized you're presenting yourself as a sacrifice you're you're presenting yourself that you're willing to take upon yourself the name of Christ by making sacrifices that's just powerful to me. It it should humble us and increase our reverence each week when we partake of the sacrament. Thinking of it that way, that you are worthy of the sacrifice 
greatest of all, the sacrifice of the only begotten. You are worth the effort, the energy. You are the work and the glory of God the Father. Everything he does is for us. What a selfless, righteous, awe-inspiring mission he has. And his son has bought in 100% to that mission. We, as his sons and daughters, are all that he does, all that he thinks about, and all that he desires to glorify. It's us. And if we could just humble ourselves and consider the reverence of what we're doing in sacrament meeting, which can be difficult with screaming children and others who may be having a difficult time during that during those few minutes where we partake of the sacrament. But the point is, nonetheless, just how, how much you are worth, how much he loves you, and how great his desire is for you to receive a remission of all sins so that so that what so that you can continue on your journey what we'll be discussing next in righteousness and with the grace of Jesus Christ fully applied to your life and that same symbolism is there at at the sacrament you have a priest kneeling at an altar blessing the sacrament praying on your behalf by the way and blessing the sacrament in which you get to partake participate. And it's no longer an animal being sacrificed, but it is the blood and flesh of Christ. And what do we do? We take his sacrifice and we make it our own. When we covenant to follow Christ at baptism, we're covenanting to follow him to sacrifice. That we likewise will make our sacrifices just as he made his sacrifice. Now, our sacrifice is just a piece. It's just a small thing compared to the sacrifice that he made. But we, it's still important for us to be making those sacrifices. Nevertheless, we must be willing to sacrifice what is asked of us, whatever that may be, whatever the Lord is asking for you to sacrifice. Well, first and foremost, sacrifice our sins. That's what I'm, that's exactly where I was going. Whatever natural man part of you or natural woman part of you that still exists as President Nelson kind of jokingly but truthfully said, whatever your favorite sins may be, he is asking you to sacrifice those things, which is a small pittance to pay to receive the fullness of his sacrifice and all that he is willing to give through his sacrifice. I want to jump over to Second Nephi 32. We're about to get into the good stuff here. <laughs> <laughs> Second Nephi 32, 5 and 6. Behold, I say unto you, that if you enter in by the way and receive the Holy Ghost, it will show unto you all things that ye should do. Behold, this is the doctrine of Christ. That is everything. That is everything. Everything we've gone through, faith, repentance, baptism, building up the doctrine of Christ here, it leads us to the gift of the Holy Ghost. And the purpose of the Holy Ghost is to show us all things that we should do. 
So the doctrine of Christ entering in the gate, the narrow way, as the scriptures scriptures say, that is all leading to receiving the Holy Ghost. Now, in the church, we understand that receiving a fullness of the Holy Ghost can only be obtained as we continue to make and keep sacred covenants with with Christ and with Heavenly Father. But at baptism, receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost opens the it, it is the gateway to opening all of that that up to us. Well, it's interesting because the, the the ordinance says receive the Holy Ghost, and it, it's really interesting in uh, in Spanish and 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 Portuguese when we conjugate the verbs. There's a way to to say receive that's like a command, and there's a way to say it that's 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 softer. And the the church uses the softer language. It's not commanding you. Mm-hmm. Right, it's not forcing you to receive the Holy Ghost, right? It's the ordinance, right? It's an initiation, and it's a mission that is given to you for you to receive the Holy Ghost. It's something that we now have access to, to be able to be taught all things that we should do to receive personal revelation more fully, but it's something that we have to grow into and we have to seek more in our lives. And of course, that's the first ordinance of the Melchizedek priesthood. That's the starting point of the temple ordinances, which are the fullness of the Melchizedek priesthood. So I very much view the gift of the Holy Ghost as the first ordinance of the temple. And like you said you made a reference to the fullness of the Holy Ghost. It brings my mind to Doctrine and Covenants 109, which is the Kirtland dedicatory prayer. Let me pull that up here. And it says, Holy Father, grant that all those who shall worship in this house may be taught words of wisdom out of the best books, that they may seek learning, even by study, and also by faith. Talked about faith and action. As thou hast said, and that they may grow up in thee and receive a fullness of the Holy Ghost and be organized according to thy laws and be prepared to obtain every needful thing. So the gift of the Holy Ghost... This, the doctrine of Christ, everything we've talked to up to this point, it's a starting point. Exactly right. When we receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, we are now ready to press forward with steadfastness in Christ. We are ready to start receiving light and truth direct from the source, from God himself, the Holy Ghost. And as we continue on the covenant path, we receive the ordinances of the temple, which give us a fullness of personal revelation, which is the path of receiving the fullness of the Holy Ghost. 
And that is ultimately what the Father desires for us at the beginning stages of our growth in the gospel. We tend to look at, at, at some of these things we do, the covenant we make at baptism, the covenants we make in the temple as the, the, the culmination or um, I don't want to say the end of, but essentially fulfilling all that the Father has in store for us well, I think, in this life. I think what you're trying to get to is so many times we see the attitude that, well, I have all my ordinances of salvation, therefore I'm saved. Yep. And maybe I'll go back to the temple occasionally, do work for ancestors or, or others, but I'm good. I've done everything that is required of me, and now I can go back and worry about my job or worry about my physical appearance or whatever the case may be because I've done all the work of salvation necessary for me to receive all that the Father has. And the reality is the ordinances of the gospel and the fullness of those ordinances that we receive in the temple the doctrine of Christ, that's the starting point. That's the foundation of the doctrine of Christ that we build upon. It is clear to those who have eyes to see and ears to hear that when you are endowed with power from on high, as you go to the temple and make and righteously keep the sacred covenants that we make in the temple. That that is a springboard. It is a starting point to truly begin a powerful, profound journey with Christ and with our Heavenly Father. This is, the examples in the scriptures are replete with this, whether it's Moses going into the wilderness, right? Having that covenantal relationship with the father or with Jehovah at that time, or Nephi and his father leaving Jerusalem, going into the wilderness, beginning their great journey. The Jaredite people, the same thing. They go into the wilderness and begin their great journey, right? The saints in this dispensation. hundred percent. What we're ultimately trying to get at, and if there's one thing that of all the episodes we do for this podcast, the one thing we want people to get out of this podcast is enduring to the end does not mean I've made all the covenants the church makes available to me so that I can go about my day and do what I want to do and, and be a decent person and do nice things for people occasionally. What we're trying to get people to understand is once you make those sacred covenants and desire to keep them righteously and live them more perfectly as your understanding grows, that now you are ready and you have the tools necessary, now the you... gifts, to go into the wilderness and walk directly with the Father. To, he'll, he will take you on a journey that is meant only for you, nobody else. It is that personal relationship with the Father, exactly. where you now walk hand in hand with Him. That is what the temple is seeking to show you. You now receive light and knowledge 
directly from the Father through the grace, obviously, of Jesus Christ. But you take that journey personally with him. That's what enduring to the to the end means is now you're going to go out into the wilderness and you're going to go places and you're going to do things that the Father has in store only for you, nobody else. And you have to have the faith, the desire, and and develop the characteristics necessarily necessary to to make that journey. He's giving you the tools. Now it's time to go out and do it. I always say that our religion truly is personal revelation. 100%. Once we are endowed with that power and the fullness of the Holy Ghost, we have that personal relationship with our Savior and with God the Father. And we are receiving light and knowledge directly from him when they are the source of our truths that is pure religion and and then what is that personal revelation what does it lead to it ultimately leads to eternal consistent personal growth personal progression what truly separates our faith our understanding, our knowledge, and really the the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that your progression as a son or a daughter of God is eternal. It doesn't stop, but you cannot survive off borrowed light. You must learn to receive directly from the source. You must learn to obtain personal revelation at, at all costs, whatever the cost may I be. I feel like we, so we've seen this several times now from, from President Nelson, almost warnings that the current times and the times that are coming, there's so much darkness and it's so perilous that if you do not, if you're not built on that foundation of personal revelation, if you don't have a gospel-centered home, if you're not having daily experiences in the home with your family, with with the Holy Ghost and personal revelation, you will not be able to survive. That is the warning that the prophet has given. Because whether we like it or not, the wilderness is coming. It is the the chaos, the darkness, the lone and dreary wilderness. It is coming whether we are prepared or not. We don't have a choice or a say-so in that. However, the Lord has provided a way He has given us the tools necessary and is stretching his arms out, pleading with us to allow him to to carry us through or to walk with us through through that wilderness. And the tools are given to us in the temple, but we must learn to perfect those tools. We must learn to utilize them. Going once or occasionally and not truly seeking to understand the tools the Lord is giving us, it's not sufficient. We must truly seek to understand the gift he's given us and then implement it in our lives and and allow him now to begin that journey with us through the wilderness. We have to go to the temple consistently and regularly and gain an understanding sufficient to then make our homes temples. 100%. And then practice what we're taught in our homes regularly and consistently 
that we can gain uh, sufficient understanding to then truly make our bodies temples. And, and it is clear, and the church is very plain about this, the only place that compares to the temple in holiness and righteousness, and I always add the only place that should, because too often it does not, is the home. In the home where you have a, a hopefully a, a, a patriarch, a, a, a brethren priesthood holder, but if not, if you are a, a, a faithful sister in the gospel and you have made and kept sacred covenants and you do not have another priesthood holder or, or brother in your home, you are the patriarch for your home. And you have the opportunity in every respect to make your home a temple and a place in which the Spirit can dwell unrestrained and that your journey through the wilderness takes place in your home with the Lord as your personal companion. Well, and that's exactly what Nephi is teaching in chapter 32. Receive the Holy Ghost. It will show unto you all things that ye should do. Behold, this is the doctrine of Christ. And then what does he say? And there will be no more doctrine given until after he shall manifest himself unto you in the flesh. And when he shall manifest himself unto you in the flesh, the things which he shall say unto you shall ye observe and do. And this is beautiful because we have this parallel imagery here, right? Just as just as Israel was was given the law and it was to be a preparation. They followed the law, but the law pointed them to Christ until the day comes that Christ came to them in the flesh and gave them the higher law. When Nephi talks about likening the scriptures unto ourselves, right? I I've come to the conclusion that Israel can be a symbol for us individually. Yes. Right? Their journey is our journey. Exactly. So what we're reading here is that the Holy Ghost will show us all things that we should do. The Holy Ghost is going to teach us how to live the law in a way that points us to Christ. Not in a way that's, that's a burden, but in a way that brings us the peace that Christ offers and gives us a personal relationship with him. And the amazing and profound promise here is that the doctrine of Christ is that the Holy Ghost will bring us to him in the flesh. The promise of the Book of Mormon, the culminating event of the Book of Mormon, is a testament to Jesus Christ and his willingness, not just his willingness, his desire to manifest himself to all of God's children. Well, he came down and what did he do? He met with each person individually. Correct. And, and he even alludes later on to the fact that there are even more of his children that he needs to go and to see and to manifest himself to. It is... When we point this scripture out to a lot of people, even very faithful members in the church, 
they will say something to the effect of, so you're telling me that Christ will manifest himself in the flesh. He'll, he'll, he'll appear to me in the flesh. Well, there's a whole discussion we have, whether he does in the flesh mortally to you or through other means. We can talk about that down the road in, in another podcast. However, the point is we must be a people. We must be individuals that are living our lives and seeking to live our lives in such a way in which we receive a fullness of the Holy Ghost so that if the opportunity presents itself, Christ can manifest himself to us in the flesh. He desires it. He seeks it. He wants us to be that faithful of people. Instead of saying, well, you don't have to receive that to receive salvation. You don't have to obtain that in this life. Why do we focus that way? Change our perspective to be a people that says, I want to live my life in such a manner and I am so aligned with the teachings and the doctrine of Christ, as we've discussed, mm -hmm. to where, as what happened to the brother of Jared, the Lord could not withhold himself from the brother of Jared. That is the journey that the Lord ultimately seeks for us to go down, is to receive him in the flesh. And the scriptures are not an example of extenuating circumstances that are not meant for us in our lives. The scriptures are an analogy and are real examples well, of what the Lord desires for us well, the, to obtain. The Book of Mormon shows us over and over and over again that regular men, regular people, through their faithfulness and living their normal life, but according to what the Spirit is directing them to do, these ordinary people have become prophets in, in their own right and have gained personal relationships with Christ and have entered into his presence in life. This isn't something that's limited to one person. It isn't something that just Moses had the privilege to do. No, Moses came down and was ready to bring all of Israel into the presence of God. That was his goal, and they rejected it. Are we rejecting in it today? Do we seek the fullness of the blessings which the Father and the Son have in store for us? My fear is too often we limit the blessings we're willing to receive. We set our sights short. Yes. We do not aim for the highest, the highest glory, the highest goal, the highest manifestations of the Spirit. And as a people... As, as a people who are truly seeking, or should be, to build Zion, a place in which the Lord truly can manifest himself in the flesh to the general populace, if we're truly seeking to build Zion, we must strive for and seek the fullness of the blessings which are available. And Nephi makes it plain as day here, and in fact laments the fact that this doctrine is so plain and yet people will not believe, they will not strive for it, they will not seek it, and he cries over it because he knows how simple it is, yet how much we must go after it and seek it with real intent and desire, and yet so many will not. We have to go through that cycle of faith. That's exactly right. And we talked, and when we were talking about faith, 
We were talking, comparing it to a seed that produces fruit. Well, what is the ultimate fruit of the tree of life? It's Christ. We should be developing our faith towards the fruit that is Christ. We want to keep testing those seeds until we find the seed that produces the tree of life, which brings us into the presence of our Savior. It is as if the tree of life, the rod, the word of God, the Holy Ghost, which is leading us to the tree, the ultimate outcome is to receive the fruit. It is the love of God, which is Jesus Christ. The fruit is the physical manifestation of the love of God. There is nothing preventing us from receiving that same manifestation except ourselves. Because people will listen to this and they will say, yeah, but we don't have to obtain that in your, this life. Okay, if that's the mindset we want to have, so be it. But, but I do wonder, will we ever truly build Zion once again when we are a people who settles for the lesser of the blessings instead of a people who consistently strives for the greatest of all the blessings of the Father? That is available to us. And we sell ourselves short consistently when we don't seek those things. Well, and it's very important here that the doctrine of Christ is that the Holy Ghost will show us all things that we should do and that that takes us to Christ himself. And then Christ will show us more things that we should observe to do. And just as a personal visitation of Christ is personal and just for you, Right. Where would where can you even imagine a personal visitation of Christ happening if not in your home? Just as happened with Abraham. That's something that's personal and that's just for you. But if you have that relationship with Christ, if the Holy Ghost has brought you to Christ, and you have that personal relationship with Christ, he is going to start showing you greater things that you should observe to do. To me, this means that the gospel, the commandments, the principle, first principles, the ordinance of the gospel, that all serves a purpose of getting us to Christ. But once we get to Christ, once we have that personal relationship with Christ, that's where we start receiving things, commandments, revelations, that's just for us. There they they are the sacred commandments that it's just for you. It's what you need to do in your personal life with your family to continue progressing towards the Father. The Holy Ghost, we, at the very beginning in, in, in 3 Nephi 11, we talked about the oneness of the Godhead and how they testified of each other. The Holy Ghost brings us to Christ well, when once we get to Christ and he is the source of our truth, he is the source of our personal revelation and what we should be doing, that's unique to us and that is personally tailored to get us to the Father, which is the fullness of all of the blessings that are that is available for us. And the truth is that ability to receive revelation directly from Christ so that we can then learn to live in the presence of the Father. 
that ability has to be obtained one way or the other in this life or the next. It is not something that is just given to you because you have put off this mortal life. You have passed away. You've died. You've gone to the spirit world. And now you all of a sudden know how or are capable of receiving. The same spirit that you have today, you will have after you die. That's exactly right. And all I'm trying to say is don't procrastinate what can be obtained now. Well, we always say don't procrastinate the day of repentance. Don't procrastinate receiving your blessings. Exactly Pursuing right. the blessings that come And there's nothing preventing us from receiving those except us, except where our belief is, where our heart is, and where our desire is. That's what's preventing us. But the, the path, the process, it's the same. That, that journey has to be walked, whether it's in this life or the next life. And I think the point we're trying to make is there's nothing preventing you, as Nephi has shown. There's nothing preventing you from taking that journey now and receiving those blessings as soon as you are able to receive them. And that's the point. There is nothing the Lord is withholding from you. You only withhold blessings from yourself. I'd like to end with a scripture going back to 3 Nephi 11, verse 39. Christ says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that this is my doctrine. And whoso buildeth upon this, buildeth upon my rock, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against them. The doctrine of Christ is the rock that we build upon. That rock is personal revelation. I would like to close with my testimony. That personal revelation is real. The restoration of the gospel, the fullness of the gospel that is available to us through the first principles, through the ordinances of the gospel, through the ordinances of the temple. It's all designed to help us have a personal relationship with Christ and with the Father. I testify that as we, line upon line, grow in the gospel, grow our faith, seek sanctification through repentance, come unto Christ, receive the words that he has for us, and observe them, we can receive that fullness of the Holy Ghost, and we can receive the fullness of the Savior in our lives. I testify that this is true, and I have felt the truthfulness of this path that the Lord has laid out for us time and time again as I have pursued the Savior in my own personal journey. The veil truly is beginning to burst throughout the world. And for those willing to walk this path to its fullest extent, the veil truly can be burst at times in its entirety for each of us individually. Were it not for these truths, were it not for our understanding, 
and the knowledge we have now of implementing and exercising these these truths and the covenants which we make and obtaining personal revelation in our lives, if it were not for these things, it would be much more difficult for me to understand and accept the statement by President Nelson that the greatest manifestations of the Savior are yet, and of the restoration, are yet to be received. And yet, because I know these things are true, because I know that personal revelation is true, there is a process, a plan, there is a, a map that has been laid out for us to receive these things, to obtain these things. I know that the greatest manifestations of our Savior are yet to be received because the veil truly is beginning to burst throughout the world. And that's the doctrine of Christ. <laughs> we may have gone off on more than we anticipated, but I think it went exactly where it was supposed to go. Thank you for joining us today. And uh, I hope that maybe some of our insights have been enlightening to you and that you have had some personal revelation of your own in ways that will help you seek the words of Christ in your own individual life and building that personal relationship with him. And I really feel like everything that we're going to be discussing in future episodes of this podcast, it's so critical to have this foundation of personal revelation because it doesn't matter the words that we are, that you and I are sharing and talking into these microphones. Our words are not that important. What's important is the words that the Holy Ghost speaks to us. And it is our prayer that our, our rambling and, and in bumbling here and these microphones might have a little tiny bit of a spirit of prophecy that can help anyone who hears these words have their own personal revelation independent of anything we're talking about. And that's my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.